nasty time for what, right? Well, good morning. How's everyone today? Good. Fantastic. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I missed you guys last week. I did. I did. I missed you guys. I love you guys. And uh, consider it such a privilege to be able to share from God's word with you each each week. I miss you. Um, did you miss me? Ah, you guys are just saying that to make me feel better, right? Yeah, <laughs> I heard that. I don't know who said it, but I heard it. You had cake without me? Well, there's cake again today, so you'll get another piece. Well, you know, some of you uh, know that from time to time I like to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit and share some details about my life. And many of you may know that several years ago, um, we won't say how many years, but several years ago, I used to do some rock climbing. A friend of mine got me interested. We'd go up to Devil's Lake up in Baraboo, Wisconsin, just north of Madison, and we'd climb in the quartzite bluffs up there. Beautiful state park, great camping, great hiking, and uh, we went up there on a number of occasions to do that. Now, my friend eventually opened an indoor climbing gym, and I was, I was a regular there. In fact, my kids were regular there when uh, they were really small. We even took them up to Devil's Lake. They did some climbing up in those bluffs as well. But, you know, it wasn't long before we got this bug to do something bigger, you know, some, some bigger climbs, bigger than these 90-foot bluffs up in, uh, up in Wisconsin. Now, I had attended some medical conferences in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And Jackson Hole, Wyoming is just a stone's throw from Grand Teton National Park. And there is just spectacular climbing in Grand Teton National Park. And it was a perfect destination for us to go out and expand our climbing experience. Well, we ended up making several trips out there over the years. We had tons of fun backpacking, camping, hiking, and, of course, climbing. And if you've never been there, you've got to go because this is just a, a, a gorgeous part of the country. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. Now, we, we've climbed a few peaks in this Teton range, but, friends, I will never forget my first mountaintop experience. In fact, we hadn't even made it all the way to the top yet. We had made camp around two-thirds of the way up. We pitched our tent, had some delicious freeze-dried chili. Uh, it's amazing how good that tastes when you're absolutely starving. But we had something to eat. We got some sleep, and I woke up just about the time the sun was coming up. And I got out of the tent, I scrambled over to an opening, and, and I, I sat down on a rock, and I just watched as the sun came up over the plains. And, 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 and the colors that I saw over the plains, and the way the, way, the, way the light shined on the mountain behind me, I can see it now. It was absolutely awe-inspiring. I, friends, was witnessing the glory of God in creation. 
And that mountaintop experience, I'll tell you, it's, it's quite honestly one of the biggest reasons that I kept going out there and kept climbing out there in other places. These, these mountaintop experiences had a dramatic and long-lasting effect on me. I'm still talking about them today. I close my eyes. I can still see them. You ever experienced anything like that? Maybe not, maybe not standing on top of a mountain. Maybe. Maybe. You know, even standing at the foot of a mountain and looking up can be an awe-inspiring experience. But, you know, when I talk about things like that, maybe, maybe, maybe a sunrise comes to mind. Or maybe it's a sunset. Or sitting and, and looking out over a beautiful lake or, or looking out over the ocean. Friends, all of these are mountaintop experiences because we are witnessing the glory, the glory of God, the glory of Jesus. Well, today we're continuing in our series of messages on the life of Jesus. And we've been focusing on these significant events in his life leading up to Holy Week. Right? In a couple of weeks, Holy Week is upon us. The death and resurrection of Jesus. And we've been, we've been studying these events to see really how they impacted the people of that time. But we also absolutely want to understand what we can learn from them as well. Remember, all of Scripture is written for our edification. It's all written for our benefit. The Word is relevant to us today. Now, this morning, I want to focus our attention on a mountaintop experience. A mountaintop experience that Matthew recorded in the 17th chapter of his Gospel. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, we're going to kind of focus on verses 1 through 9. And if you've been with us for any part of this series, you may remember that the majority of our scripture is being taken from the gospel of Matthew. And like other events that we've studied, this story is also recorded in several of the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story, and Luke's account is very, very similar to Matthew's. This, friends, is the story of the mountaintop experience when Jesus was transfigured, the transfiguration of Jesus. And this is, this is a pivotal point in Jesus' ministry, because from here, his focus turns to Jerusalem. And the march to Jerusalem, the march to the cross. This is a pivotal point in his ministry. It is also a pivotal point in the life of the disciples. Now you guys know that I believe that in order to understand any passage of Scripture, it's important to look at the context in which it's written. So let's look at some context. Well, at this point, Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. As we said, the focus turns to Jerusalem and to the cross. So the disciples, they've been walking with Jesus for oh, around two and a half years now. 
And we know that we've seen him, we've seen him cast out demons and exercise kingdom power over the forces of evil. The disciples had seen them heal many, many, many people in many different ways. Some with just the touch of his robe. They'd seen him calm the storm. They'd seen him feed the masses twice. Once to 5,000, once to 4,000 with just a couple of loaves and a few fish. Miracle after miracle after miracle. Yet the disciples still were not sure exactly who this man Jesus was. And then in the middle of chapter 16, we see Jesus ask the question that we wrestled with just a couple of weeks ago. He asked his disciples, who do you say I am? Remember, we asked that question of ourselves as well. Who do we say Jesus is? And if you know the story from Matthew chapter 16, Peter jumps up, right? Good old Peter. Answers for all the disciples. He says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And you start to think for a minute that, well, you know what? Maybe they are starting to get it. Maybe they are starting to understand. And then Jesus goes on to really tell him some disturbing things. He says he has to go to Jerusalem. And he has to suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he says he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And this this does not sit well with the disciples. It especially does not sit well with Peter. Because Peter says, no, 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 this cannot happen to you. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You're thinking in purely human terms. And what Jesus is saying is he must. He must go to the cross. He must die according to the will of God. See, the disciples, they still didn't understand that Jesus' messianic role included suffering and death. Even though the Old Testament predicted it, they still didn't get it. But the fact was Jesus had to go to the cross. And then Jesus tells them something very important, and he's telling us today as well. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And what what, what a shocking metaphor for discipleship. Death, crucifixion, death on a cross. But friends, that's how it has to be. A disciple, a true disciple of Jesus must die to one's own will, must deny oneself, must take up their cross, must embrace the will of God no matter the cost, and follow Jesus. You know, we said a couple of weeks ago, there is no halfway with this. There's no lukewarm. You're either all in or you're all out. Are we 
we ready? Are we ready to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses and follow after Jesus? I pray that we would be. I pray that we are. But you know, when you think about it, this had to be a really tense time between Jesus and the disciples, right? I mean, there's a lot of rebuking going on. You know, Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus rebukes Peter. Jesus talking about how he's got to die. There's a lot of tension. And tension like that doesn't go away overnight. In fact, it lingered for about a week. Because the next thing that we read in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, says this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So Jesus is going to truck up this mountain. Actually, Luke says that he was going to go up there to pray. And he doesn't take all the disciples. He doesn't drag them all up there. He just takes Peter, James, and John. And it's interesting that many commentators think that he took them because he thought these guys needed a little bit more supervision than others. And we know that's true about Peter, right? I mean, Peter's constantly uh, getting in trouble by saying things and doing things without thinking. You know, so Jesus is going to go up the mountain. He's like, oh, hold on a second. You, you, and you. Come on. You come with me. But I think more probably and more accurately, Jesus was thinking, okay, this tension has gone on long enough. It is time to get some stuff straight. Come with me. I want to show you something. Verse 2 tells us, There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. So Jesus was transfigured before their very eyes. The Greek word is the word metamorpho, which is where we get our word metamorphosis. And metamorphosis, it's, it's a total transformation. It's not just a change in outward appearance. It's like the caterpillar that turns into butterfly. It's a total transformation. He became so bright in appearance that it was difficult to look at him, like looking at the sun on a sunny day. I wish we had more of those. He became so bright that it was difficult to look at. And, and friends, what they were witnessing in that moment was the glory of the one and only Son of God. You know, Peter wrote about this later on in his letter to the churches at Asia. I believe that uh, Jeff White referenced this last week. In 2 Peter, Peter says, I was there. I witnessed he calls it the majesty. I witnessed the glory of Jesus, the Messiah. John also wrote about it in his gospel. He says, we have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And friends, there is absolutely no doubt, no doubt that this was a glimpse of the future glory of Jesus. The future glory of Jesus after 
the crucifixion, after the resurrection. But you know, I, I want to make sure that we understand that Jesus has always had this glory. He's always had this glory. Before the beginning of time, Jesus had this glory. Max Lucado writes that this is Christ in his truest self, wearing his pre-Bethlehem and post-resurrection wardrobe. He's always had this glory. He just did not display it on earth except for this mountaintop experience. In John 17, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says to the Father, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Before the world began. He's always had this glory, and he will have this glory again after his resurrection. And this is the same glory that, friends, we will witness when he comes again. Amen? And it is going to be awesome. So what what do we glean from this? Well, we know that Jesus, he's, he's not just a good teacher. He's just not, you know, some rabbi or a good spiritual leader. Jesus is God. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and this reinforces it right here. Jesus even told his disciples in John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know God? You want to know his will? You want to see the glory of God? Look to Jesus in the scriptures. And then Matthew writes in verse 3, Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And this seems kind of curious, doesn't it? I mean, why Moses, why Elijah? Well, these two giants of the faith, they represent the law and the prophets. Moses is the law. Elijah is the prophets. Absolutely. the totality of the Old Testament, which is the law and the prophets. The totality of the Old Testament came to meet with Jesus on this Mount of Transfiguration. And what do we know about the Old Testament? We know that the Old Testament is filled with prophecies of the coming Messiah. Jesus came to fulfill those prophecies. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And you know, Matthew says that they were talking. Luke tells us what they were talking about. In Luke chapter 9, he writes, they spoke about his, meaning Jesus, departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They were talking, they were talking about the cross. They were talking about the resurrection. What better subject to discuss than Jesus, God's plan of redemption, achieved in the work of the cross, achieved in what Jesus did? And then in verse 4, 
Got to love Peter, right? Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Oh, Peter. I love that guy. But, you know, like many times before, Peter makes trouble for himself because he speaks really without thinking. As a matter of fact, in Luke's account, he has a parenthetical note that says he did not know what he was saying. But I think that Peter probably didn't want this incredibly special moment to end. And, and without really thinking, what Peter does is he puts Jesus on an equal plane with Moses and Elijah. Because he's going to make the same shrine for each three of them. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. And we know it's a mistake because God interrupts him in verse 5. He says, it says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So the, the Shekinah glory of God, the Shekinah glory that we read about in the Old Testament, it envelops them. And they hear this, this voice from heaven. And it echoes the same words that we heard at Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And what God is doing here is he's rebuking Peter. He's rebuking his attempt to place Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. God interrupts Peter so that they would all know that Jesus, friends, is unique. He is the beloved Son of God, the one and only. And yes, these are the same words that we heard at Jesus' baptism, right? We studied this a few weeks ago. This is my son whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. But he adds a phrase. What does he add? Listen to him. Listen to him. You notice he, God didn't say, listen to me. No, he said, listen to him. Listen to him when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Listen to him when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Listen to him when he says, you're either for me or against me. Listen to him when he says, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. Listen to him. Who else are we going to listen to? Jesus is the one and only son of God. He is God himself. Listen to him. And, you know, in verse 6, we see that when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. You know, I find it really interesting that the disciples chose this moment to fall to the ground. They chose this moment to be afraid. 
They didn't really seem to be afraid when Jesus was transfigured before their very eyes. They didn't fall on their faces when Jesus shone brighter than the sun. It didn't even seem to bother them that Moses and Elijah appeared. But when the cloud of the glory of God enveloped them and they heard the voice of the Father from heaven, then, then they fell prostrate and were terrified. They were in the immediate presence of God. They heard the voice of God the Father. What else could they do but tremble and fall? And friends, I, I can't help but wonder if we've lost that sense of holy awe when we come into the presence of God. How often, how often do we, do we, do we fall to our knees before the God of the cosmos? How often do we fall on our faces in front of him? I pray that we would never lose that sense of holy awe. God is an amazing God, and we can never forget that. It's really interesting to see that Jesus comes and he touches them. Touches them with the same touch that had healed so many. And he says, Get up. Other translations say more accurately, Rise or rise up. See, it's the same Greek word that's used when they talk about Jesus' resurrection, as in he has been raised from the dead, he is no longer here something that we celebrate in just a few weeks. And what does Jesus say? He says, do not be afraid. And friends, this is something that Jesus tells us over and over and over again. And that is exactly what Jesus is saying to us today. Do not be afraid. To those to those who are dealing with, with sickness and with anxiety and depression and loss, he's touching them. He's saying, do not be afraid. Rise up. To those, to those who to those, to those, to those who want to follow after Jesus, but they're so afraid of what they might have to give up, they're afraid of what they might have to do. Friends, we have nothing to fear from God or man when Jesus is standing in the gap for us. Amen? Amen. And we know this is true because, and the disciples discovered this, because when they looked up, it was only Jesus. And in the end, friends, there is only Jesus. Each of the synoptic gospels that record this story include this verse, which speaks to the importance of what this says. In the end, there is only Jesus. 
There's nothing else. Moses, Elijah, the law, the prophets, they can't save us. Only Jesus can. This needs to be the focus of our lives. This needs to be the focus of our witness. And, and, and friends, I know that this is uncomfortable. Uncomfortable in the world in which we live. This world of tolerance, right? This world of moral relativism. The world, and unfortunately, even the church sometimes that says, oh, there's many ways to heaven. Jesus is just one. Friends, that is nonsense. Because scripture tells us otherwise. Jesus tells us otherwise. And we are to listen to him. Not the shifting winds of culture. Not what it is the world wants you to believe. You listen to Jesus. This, this incredible mountaintop experience that Peter, James, and John had, it, it, it was, I'm sure, awe-inspiring and something that they wouldn't soon forget. And it was there to reinforce the supremacy of Christ. And it also gives us a glimpse into the glory that we will share in one day. The glory that we will know for eternity. Mountaintop experiences are awesome. They can change us. Sadly, we don't live on the mountain. Wouldn't that be great to live on the mountain? But we live on the plains. And yes, God will from time to time give us glimpses of his coming glory. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen nearly as often as we'd like. But friends, our spiritual lives will be most complete when we focus on the glory that we see around us in our daily lives. The daily grind, that's where we live. And there is glory present even there. And we can experience that glory. We can witness that glory. We can experience the power of the Holy Spirit if we just do a couple of things. Listen to Jesus. He's the one and only Son of God. Allow Him to touch us. May we heed His words to rise up and do not be afraid. I pray, friends, that we would all do that today, this week, and for all eternity. We will witness His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and praise you, Lord. And we thank you for the glimpses of the glory of God that we see in our lives. That we see all around us. That we see in creation. That we see in nature. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us these glimpses. These mountaintop experiences. Lord, and we ask for more of them. And we ask that they would strengthen our faith and that we would be emboldened, that we might listen to you, that we might rise up and that we would not be afraid to be the people that you've called us to be. Father, pour out your spirit, guide us and strengthen us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.